Hey, so we're in a series real quick, Hidden in Plain Sight. It's all about the parables. We're in two weeks where we're talking about these words that Jesus spoke, do not judge. Three simple words at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7. And it's interesting because Jesus usually hides kind of the, the truth of the parable. He cloaks it. But he didn't do that when he unveiled this during the Sermon on the Mount. He tells a story after this. We talked about it last week, a little bit about the, the splinter and the log and the, all that kind of stuff. But he leads off with these three words. And I believe he does this because he knows that you and I, we have a tendency to lean into this even though Jesus says this. And even though he says it plainly, in fact, it is probably the habit or maybe even the pastime or the hobby or the expertise of people who call themselves followers of Jesus is to engage in this activity. And so just a couple of weeks as we dig into it. And before we get in today's parable, and there's actually two, we're going to go through them pretty quick. I promise you'll not be late for lunch. Um, I want you to grasp this idea. Most of us, when we judge, we don't do it because we're trying to be vindictive or hurtful or hateful to other people. I mean, it comes much more naturally to us than that. You know, I mean, we, we don't want to be that way. We just find ourselves engaging in that behavior, almost like the little progression we showed last week that we, you know, we observe and we evaluate, then we start critiquing and then we end up judging and almost like we kind of fall into it. We didn't mean to. Or you end up in a conversation about somebody that you know and the way they behaved or the way they act or the way they voted or the way that they think, whatever it is, and then you find yourself sort of devolving into judgment. We don't, we don't, we don't mean to. Most of us have really good intentions when we judge. We really do. And that's important to acknowledge because this isn't just a rap on the wrist or a, you know, Jesus said not to, which is enough for some of us, not quite enough for most of us. So don't do it. Uh, it. Most of us have great intentions when we do this. We, we think it's a victimless activity. We really do. We think, you know, I mean, what's it, what's it harming? What's the, what's the trouble? I mean, we just get to, you know, rant a bit around dinner. I feel better. You feel better. That's the perception that we have. We think it's sort of a victimless activity. And so we don't really take the words of Jesus very serious when he says, do not judge. And then many times, like I said, we have good intentions. I mean, I, if I'm judging you, it's because I don't want you to go down the path I went down. If I'm judging you, it's because I, I don't want you to get hurt like I got hurt. I don't want you to follow in the same footsteps or find the potholes or the, uh, the air of your ways the way I did. I, I can say, you know, there, but for the grace of God go I. So I'm going to help you know that there's a path that you should follow, even if it's my mistakes or maybe something I learned that you don't know, and I can share it with you, and that can slowly move from good intentions to a place of judging. And yet, with that in mind, victimless, I don't know, good intentions, maybe some, Jesus still said, well, what did he say? Say it with me. Do not judge. So I want you to grasp this before we go any further, and it's this. Good intentions do not erase the clarity and the pointedness of Jesus' teachings. They don't. I mean, e even if you think your judgments are benign, even if you think they do no harm, really, good intentions don't take away the pointed way Jesus simply said, look, if you're going to kind of go my way, if you're going to follow me on the path, if you're going to at least 
try to apply the things that I'm teaching. One of the things that you're going to have to uphold and maybe come back to over and over again and maybe even remind each other, you got to be careful because you can't be judging judgers, right? You still can't do it. Do not judge. It's the whole thing. It's very complex and you'll find yourself in a place where you think, I'm not even sure I can have an opinion. I'm not even sure I'm allowed to think these things. And I promise you, if you end up in that spot, you're at least in good territory, Wouldn't it be great if most of us thought, I'm not sure I should even have an opinion? How many arguments would we avoid if we had that perspective? I mean, I guess I can have it, but maybe I shouldn't share it. Still, good territory, isn't it? And so Jesus says, do not judge with pointedness and clarity. Victimless? No, not really. It's never victimless. Sometimes when you judge, the victim is your little co-conspirator. You know, the one you were kind of ranting about other people with. Sometimes when we do that sort of stuff in a discussion, even though it feels a little cathartic and maybe it feels like we're finding common ground with somebody else, they find out what we really think about, oh, a certain way of thinking or living, and they know that your opinion somehow indicts them as well. Victimless? Not at all. In fact, the biggest reason why Jesus told us not to judge is because we end up being subject to that same level of judgment ourselves. So that was last week. We can't get into that because we're, you know, got a whole other thing this week. But you need to know this, that when you judge, you place yourself at least a little bit further away from God's unconditional, merciful love every time. And you don't want that. You don't. In fact, you can't live in that place. It's incriminating. It's a burden. It's too much. If that doesn't compute, then hop on and listen to last week's. But that is the truth, that the victim is often other people, but the victim is always us when we engage in that sort of behavior. In fact, Jesus would want us to know this, I think, that judgment and love are mutually exclusive. And this little nugget of truth is the very thing that would maybe be all you and I need to remember to heed or at least try to stick close to Jesus's words, do not judge. Maybe that's all we need to take with us. Because at the end of the day, we want to be known for our love. You do, don't you? I mean, when somebody's in your presence, when somebody interacts with you, when somebody engages with you, I mean, they may not remember what you say or even what the the content of the conversation was, but you want them to walk away from you and have this sense that they are who they are, that God made them and that you see them and that you love them. This is what you want. And these two activities, these two heart directions, they're They're mutually exclusive. Let me say it maybe a bit more plainer. You cannot judge and love at the same time. You cannot. It's impossible. One is evaluative and one is unconditional. One is open and one is closed. And anything that is not unconditional, well, it's something other than love. It's a little short of it. And we strive for it. We want it. And so these ideas are really what the parables are about. Now, we're rolling three parables into this one idea of do not judge because Jesus talks about it so often and so plainly and so clearly. 
And so here's the beginning of another one. I'm going to read through most of it uh, without a ton of interruption because I want you to know that when Jesus tells a parable, what he does is he pulls out of his imagination and the heart of God an idea that he could create out of anything. He can make it all, the whole thing up. He creates the characters, the story, all of the intricate pieces, the examples. He does it from scratch and he wants us to grasp exactly what he's saying on purpose. And so here's what he says. So Jesus told them another parable. He often starts parables like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And he uses agriculture a lot because he lived in an agrarian society and there's farmers all around and there's things growing and there's fields and people understand them. They are accessible. I don't know what he would use today to tell his parables, but in his day and time, it's not that different from ours. You've driven through Kansas. You've seen it, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, and he sowed this seed. When he sowed this seed, while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads... Then the weeds also appear. Now, this is important. You grasp this image. There's a field full of wheat, beautiful wheat. An enemy came along before anything had really grown up out of the ground, and he sowed some very specific seeds. And these seeds sprouted the weeds. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he said. This is what happened. Just a reminder. This is how it occurred. And the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? You want us to remove them? Simple story so far, right? Very simple. And he says this, no, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Now, how could that be? You've, you've weeded before, right? You know what a weed looks like. How could that be the case in this story? Well, the wheat, of course, is different than our wheat today. Ours, been, ours has been changed and modified. But in the first century, in their culture, the wheat would begin to grow up. And if there were weeds among the wheat, they could tell that there was something different. But by the time they could see the stalks of both the wheat and the weeds, the roots had engaged with each other and became intertwined. And so if they did go to try to pull up the weeds from among the wheat, they would end up pulling the wheat with it. That was the first problem. But the kind of weeds that is being described here that ended up in a wheat field in the first century was a, a seed called darnel. And it's a, it's a pretty dastardly, awful seed. It, it's toxic. It's, it's not good. In fact, it was against the law in first century Rome for anybody to sow Darnell. It, it looked an awful lot like wheat. In fact, there was a stage in the middle of the wheat and the weeds growing up that they looked almost identical, impossible to tell apart. And so this was the problem for farmers who grew wheat in the first century. How do we know the difference between this toxic weed that if it's, if it's ingested, it'll make you sick. If it's ingested at a, a very high quantity, it could be fatal. And it's among the wheat. This is the thing we eat. This is our staple. This is our bread. This was the problem for the first century farmer. And it's not that different today. In fact, Darnell's still very difficult for wheat farmers today. 
But wheat has been changed. All kinds of things have shifted. It makes it a little bit easier. So the best way for a farmer in the first century would be to take a, well, to go to the threshing floor where they're gathering the seed and, and take a, a winnowing fork or a, we have screens today, they didn't then, and throw it up in the air and the, the wind would blow, what, the weeds away, the chaff, and it would separate the wheat from the chaff. And you've heard some of these phrases before. It's ancient farming. But then Darnell would evolve a bit, become a bit more like wheat seeds, and even the winnowing fork or the threshing floor would not separate this Darnell seed from the wheat seed. And many farmers would end up with both in their field at the same time. And so Jesus is describing the problem that every farmer had. And he's describing what happens when they begin to grow up. And what do you do? What's a farmer do? And, and this, is a, this is a big deal because this is their livelihood. And Jesus is going to give us a very simple solution. And this is his solution. Now, remember, is the story about wheat and the weeds? I mean, it kind of is, but it's not really, is it? It's about people, isn't it? It's about people and people who are good and people who are bad or people who are, you know, represent the wheat, that this is a good crop and people who are weeds. You know anybody who's a weed? You, you know some people who are weeds, don't you? See, you? see how easy you did it? You just went right to judging, didn't you? <laughs> you thought of a name, you thought of a deal, you thought of a story, you just went right there. And so this is what Jesus says, okay? He says, here's what I want you to do. And I know every farmer is thinking, I mean, yeah, that's what we kind of have to do. But if you weren't a farmer, you would think, well, this sounds so simple. I mean, I can't imagine trying to separate seeds who are similar. He says, let, them both, let, let both of these grow together until the harvest. That's all you're going to do. Which is essentially do what? Nothing. That's what you do. I love it when Jesus tells me to do Nothing. Because doing nothing is my favorite. I love it when Jesus says, wait. Just wait and watch. Now, that, of course, is easier said than done. Because you're good at done people. You are people who know how to handle problems and take care of issues and fix things. And waiting is not most of our favorite thing to do. But I'm telling you, Jesus says, let them both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds, tie them up in bundles. We're going to burn those. I know it's not what you want to hear. There's a whole explanation of the parable. You can read that on your own, right? But then I want you to gather the wheat and bring it in to my barn. That's what I want you to do. Eventually, Jesus says, it will be obvious to you once the heads pop on the wheat, the, the very thing that you use to take care of harvest and eventually make bread and grind it down, all the things you're going to make flour with it. Once the heads pop, the darnell, it's obvious. You have to wait till then, though. You have to wait until harvest time. If you do it before harvest time, you're going to mess it up. You're going to need to pull everything up together, and then all the roots come. It's fine. Everything's uprooted. It's supposed to be anyway. You're harvesting. And it will be the very thing that you need to do so that you know the difference between the two. This is what the church or followers of Jesus have the most difficult time doing, is wait. Let them grow up. We'll see what happens. And God will sort it out at the end. But that's exactly what God has wanted us to do. Galileo 
thought that Copernicus had the right idea that, that we don't live in a solar system that has the earth at its center. Galileo took that idea and made it more popular. In fact, we probably wouldn't know Copernicus' name, really, unless we understood who Galileo was. But the church at Rome said, well, that cannot be the case. We must be the center of everything. And so Galileo was punished. And then he wouldn't recant. He knew it was true. He knew that the sun was the center of all things, solar system-wise. And then finally they decided we can't have him spreading his message. We've got to, well, if we put him to death, we'll have a revolt on our hands. So let's just put him in prison. He died in prison. William Tyndale saw the Bible that the Catholics were using in, the, in his century, and he decided it needed to be changed and made different. So he wrote a different translation. In fact, his translation is the foundation for every translation we use today. His translation so offended the Catholic Church that they bound him up, beat him to death, and they decided they weren't going to wait to the end to burn him. And so they did. That's how he died, a martyr. Wait until the end. I don't know who you found yourself sitting in judgment of this week, but my guess is if you're anything like me, you can be halfway down the road of judgment ready to pronounce uh, the final sentence on somebody's opinion, their indictment, the way they live, the way they've chosen, whatever it is, and we're ready to be judge and jury, sentencer and executioner all at once. We do not like to wait. But Jesus says simply this, wait until the end. The Lord, I know, I know, I can tell it's obvious. No, wait until the end. In fact, the message of the parable couldn't be more clear. If you're going to sort the wheat from the weeds, know this, you probably can't tell the difference. And so you should wait. And there's only one qualified to tell the difference between the wheat and the weeds. It's the harvester. In the parable, of course, that's God himself. Only he is the one that can separate the wheat from the weeds. He is the only one. No, we can pull them up, but we lay them before God. And he says, well, I know this is going to surprise you. That was a good one. I know. Shocker, right? You had no idea. You didn't see that coming. But this is how it works. This is why Jesus says emphatically, plainly, without qualifications, there's no asterisk in your Bible after those three words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. He just says, do not judge. And I know, I know what some of us are thinking because we were brought up in cultures that taught judging is a, really a key piece of what it means to develop faith that you have to be able to discern and by their fruit you shall know them. All of these things that we could quote in scripture that give us maybe some justification for the judgments that we pronounce on other people, usually the people that are closest to us or the people that are furthest from us because we don't even know who they are. But the moment you begin to go down that road, may God remind us that judgment and love are mutually exclusive. In fact, love was the thing that Jesus commanded for us to do, and judgment was the thing he commanded that we not do. And so Jesus has it show up in story after story after story. Here's one of the most poignant, and we'll close with this. 
Jesus told a story to some people who thought they were better than others. So just by show of hands, who is this story for? You don't know what to do now, do you? You feel a little stuck. Am I, am I admitting to be a judge? Am I not aware that I judge others? This is a tough thing, but I think it's incredible that Luke writes it this way because there are some people in Jesus, in his company, who thought they were better than other people. They, they looked down on them is probably a more direct translation. It was a, the, the evil, toxic version of judgment that we would call condescension, that you have been a recipient of. My guess is, if you're anything like me, you have doled it out as well. So Jesus thought, I'm going to tell a story about that. And he did. Two men went to the temple to pray, and one was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. Jesus, again, gets to pull these characters out of the fabric of his culture, I don't know who he would call out today. I don't know who he would use today, but we know enough about scriptural uh, background, first century life to know what is meant by Pharisee and what's meant by despised tax collector. If you weren't sure, he threw in despised just so you would know. The Pharisee stood by himself and this is what he prayed. There he is, they're at the temple. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Now, when Jesus uses this, every Jewish man or woman would know exactly where Jesus got this from. Every Jewish male arose in the morning in the first century and they said a prayer. And their prayer was, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile and I thank you that I was not born a woman. Every Jewish male prayed the same thing. And so now Jesus takes this prayer and shifts it a bit. And the Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. And so in case God didn't know who he was talking about, he got specific. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, all those kinds of people. Or even like, and he has right in front of him an object lesson, a man who's not too far away. And he points to him and says, even like this tax collector. And he says, after he names all the people that he's not like, he says, just in case you missed it, Lord, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So now we have his list of indictments and his spiritual resume. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, what did he say? Let's say it together. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So when we judge, this thing happens where our sights are set on other people. And if you're any good at judging, and you know, if we were to maybe give ourselves a grade on how good we judge or how adept we are at it, then you know how that works. I could begin to critique somebody's perspective, somebody's religion, somebody's behavior, somebody's you fill in the blank. And when I do that, my sights are set clearly on them and their deal what they think, how they act, what they believe. When that happens, myopia sets in, and as I judge, my self-awareness begins to plummet. Why? Well, my attention's on you. It's not on me anymore. My indictments are about you. 
and how you think and your behavior and how if you cleaned up your act, the rest of us wouldn't have to. This is what happens in my own heart. My attention on you, my self-awareness goes down like, well, the stock market over the last month, right? Plummets. When that occurs, my focus becomes everything that's out here and my relationship with God is not even on my radar. And so, as a result, I find myself concerned about all the things that don't matter. But this man, this tax collector, he doesn't even see the Pharisee looking down his nose at him, just from a short distance probably in the temple, um, right there near, I'm sure, probably the court of the Gentiles, knowing that the tax collector was there. A Pharisee had to be there if he wanted to see in proximity to all these other sinners. And everyone, he was grateful that he wasn't. And the tax collector doesn't even notice him. Why? Well, his focus is on his relationship with God. And he says the truest thing he knows to say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Was he dejected? No, no. What does he know? He knows that our only hope before a holy God is the mercy that God gives us. That's what he knows. And so he says it, he names it, and he embraces it. Here's what Jesus says as a result. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who, what? Exalt themselves will be, and those who will be exalted. This is the great reversal of fortune. If you remember anything from these two weeks and these three parables, and there's others, we won't get into them during this series. We have many parables to go, and some are short. It's flying by halfway through. Is this judgment and love? They are mutually exclusive. You cannot judge and love at the same time. And in fact, you and I have to be in a place where we, in humility of heart, decide that we want this to be how we operate, that we want love to be central, we want love to be what we're remembered for. In fact, we could be so bold today as we wrap up to pray a very simple prayer. That, Lord, when I begin to place myself in judgment with an opinion of somebody else, would you just throw me a little, just throw me a little gentle, holy elbow? You could pray that. And, you know, not the bony, hard kind, just a, just a little nudge. Just a little nudge. And I'll be sensitive enough. I'm praying this prayer specifically. I want to know when my heart has a tendency to find itself in judgment of somebody else because then love must have taken an exit. And I want love to be central. I I want love to be what I'm known for. I want love to be so natural to me that I don't find myself slipping into places of judgment or condescension in any way, shape, or form. So, Lord, would you... When I find myself in a position where I'm about to sit in judgment of somebody else, regardless of what it is, just give me a little nudge. You could pray that today. And what you'll find is that God will do that. I don't know what it'll be. It'll be in the form of, I don't know, you might trip. You know, God does that to me. I'll trip some, I'll catch my foot on something. And I'll think, I'll look behind, like, what was that? And there's nothing there. And I'm like, you did it again, God. And so this is what God will do maybe for you. Or maybe somebody else will say something thoughtful and sincere, like, I don't know why you would say that about them. I mean, they're so kind at work. That'll be a little holy elbow. Maybe you'll read something that will jog your your heart back into a place of sincerity. And then what will happen is you'll begin to wonder what love would look like 
And then you'll get curious about them or their story or why they think the way they think or why they do what they do. And curiosity will lead you to a place of discovery and love has places to grow. This is what God has designed us for. And if you've paid attention to our culture, this is exactly what is needed by your neighbors, by your friends, by the people in your family that are just sure you're sitting in a place of condescension over them. This is exactly what God has asked us to do and be. So I guess what remains is the question, are you willing to pray that? I'll pray it. Maybe you can join me. Lord, we ask right now in this place that you would, when I slip into a place of judgment or condescension or a little superiority or, or even, even the thought that the Pharisee uh, prayed, you know, there but for God's grace, go me. I, I'm so glad I, I, I'm, my life isn't a mess like so-and-so. Lord, whatever form the judgment takes, I know that pride is right there in the middle. And would you, Lord, in, in your kindness, give me a bit of a nudge? Whatever that nudge might look like, send it my way. I will act like I don't want it in the moment, but I'll come back to this prayer again and ask for it a thousand times, Lord. Because we want to be a people that loves. We want to be known for who we are in the way we love and curious about others. Lord, just uh, sort of brick by brick, would you take away the pride and the hard-heartedness that takes up residence in me? And help me to see your love for me Help me to not uh, allow my judgments to keep me an arm's length from you. I don't want to be distant from your uh, unconditional healing love. I want all of it. I want and need it. So help me to offer that same love to the people around me. Give me a heart just like that. Transform me from the inside out. Lord, we all ask this and we pray it together in the name of Jesus. We all say,